welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. We have our first caller on the line. I believe it's Bruce Domer. Well, for some reason, the switchboard isn't working, so I'm going to restart the switchboard, and while I do that, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this radio show. This is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information, biota.org slash podcast. And I normally say that if you're listening for the first time, every Friday night at 8 p.m. Pacific, we host Biota Live. Let me just try Bruce again. Hello, Eric. Can you hear me? Hello, Bruce. Finally. Sorry about that. We had technical difficulties last Friday, and we're starting off with technical difficulties this evening. So I have some news and notes to go through, Bruce, to normal. Um, But the big news is obviously from last Saturday's show, uh, Gerald and Jeffrey and Justin and I had so much fun last Saturday. We are going to do it again next Saturday for 90 minutes. We went over time last Saturday. But the general feedback that I've received is that doing a Friday night show followed by a Saturday morning show produces too much audio, even for the hardcore listening public. So there will be no Friday recording next Friday night at 8 p.m. Pacific. However, the following Friday, there will be a recording of a topic yet to be decided. But the big news is next Saturday, which is February 16th at 10 a.m., 90 minutes of discussion on artificial life isn't intelligent design, question mark, which is really a a homage to um, Dick Gordon's book, and I I believe it has a new name now, so it no longer ends in in a question mark. But uh, in news and notes leading towards Dick Gordon's book, I'd like to thank Jonathan Flynn, who emailed me a link to an edited version of Will Wright's talk at NASA. Ironically, between the video version and the podcast release version, you have almost the full talk uh, that Will Wright did at NASA together with the uh, questions and answers at the end. A very nice video clip, which has been added to the Biota podcast page, biota.org slash podcast. If you would like to call in like Bruce, the number to call 646-200-0640. The topic for this evening, which we'll be discussing shortly, is from books to the internet, ways of communicating artificial life to a starting audience. Uh, In fact, reminiscing with regards to our own beginnings in artificial life and talking a little bit about how contemporary folks start to learn about artificial life. Now, we have some tentative grace on news. Uh, we have a venue for the 20th of February, a tentative venue, which is the Charlotte Street Hotel uh, in London, on Charlotte Street in London. Um, it's an area that I reflect on as being like a little Sydney. There seem to be a lot of uh, Australian accents when I remember wandering around that area. It's somewhere between, uh, it's on the other side, I think, of Oxford Street from Soho. Uh, but the, the area looks very familiar. Now, Bruce, breaking news, are you actually going to be speaking at the February uh, Greytham, or you're not going to be in the UK until July? I'm not going to be in the UK till July. Um, unfortunately, um, Galen really needs me to try to help resolve this family crisis. Certainly, certainly. So um, I think perhaps Justin might be um, setting it off uh, solo, but, I mean, as you've heard in uh, previous Biota Lives, Justin's a fascinating fellow, and I'm sure he's uh, already working on a topic for uh, the 20th of February. Now, in addition to this, I have just uh, completed the 
third dialogue in Dick Gordon's book project, but the fourth dialogue will be with none other than Biota's own Bruce Damer. It's starting to feel a bit like a late 1980s, early 1990s arcade fighting game. You know, the, the dialogue to the death has gone through Dick Gordon, it's gone through the Panspermians, it's gone through the creationists, and the final round, Bruce Damer and I, and the uh, dialogue with regards to, I guess you've, you pretty well already discussed what your what your article is on, I think, in, in previous podcasts, Bruce. But there's still time for folk to participate. I've submitted four names to Dick, uh, and he's contacted them during the week. Uh, and I certainly, I mean, I, I'm sure you'll agree, Bruce, it's been a, an amazing project, and it would be wonderful to have as many people as possible participating, particularly in the uh, in the dialogue section. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. The feedback that I've received from one of the four people that Dick has emailed during the week is just that there's an overwhelming number of interesting folk uh, to communicate with. Um, and I've certainly had fun with the dialogues to date. Do you think you'll be doing any dialogues, Bruce? I'm, I'm hoping to because I feel I haven't really made a full contribution until I have. So uh, just a matter of getting life straightened away here and then getting into the East Coast and getting some time to do it. Certainly. Well, it's the kind of thing, I mean, what I did with my uh, sections of dialogue is I printed all of them out and then wandered around with the kind of printed copies rolled out, ready to take out in the, at an opportune moment and underline and read. In fact, I, I have yours close by <laughs> for similar treatment over the next few days. Um, but I would thoroughly encourage folks that want to get in contact, uh, either email me tom at noble8.com or um, make contact through the Biota comments page with regards to getting involved in, in Dick Gordon's book. And there are just such a diversity of contributors that I'm sure everyone who listens to this uh, internet radio show slash podcast on a regular basis will have something to uh, to participate in. Now, for folks interested in participating the e this evening, the number to call is 646-200-0640. And I'm just seeing if we have anyone in the chat. We have Matt in the chat, a returning chat participant who has put questions in previously. So, Matt, if you would like to contribute anything this evening, I'll be sure to read your chat out. And for folks who don't want to call the U.S. number, we have a chat window that you can get to through biota.org slash podcast will lead you through to the Blog Talk radio page where the chat window is. Now, based on last week, Bruce, I did have a small topic to discuss before we got into the main topic with the view that folks who are interested could call in. Um, but we might as well start on the main topic, actually. And that is uh, from books to the Internet, uh, ways of inspiring a contemporary generation in artificial life. And I, I know you have a, a few topics to cover with regards to future inspiration in artificial life. But do you, are you feeling that you're at a position to give an update with regards to your PhD project currently? Yeah, in fact, uh, the good news is I, I had an interview via Skype with the University of East London subcommittee on Thursday morning, and they've accepted the project and my prior. What I had to do is show a slideshow of my prior work from literally going from uh, when I left graduate school in 1987 to today, uh, because I was I was on the PhD program at University of Southern California, and I had to show that I had done a continuous line of research uh, for 22 years or so, um, or 21 years until today, and they accepted that I had 
sort of done that, and so it goes to the main committee on Monday. And do the people you speak to, uh, you spoke to uh, yesterday, are they the ones that make the representations to the main committee, or will you make the representation directly? Uh, they're the ones. So I have to uh, write, uh, rewrite the proposal over this weekend. And in fact, um, it occurred to me, and it was accepted by Elizabeth Goodman, that I include a major uh, performance element in the project because they're. The, the uh, program there has a lot of uh, performance artists, and as you know, I'm I'm trying to, in a sense, launch a full career as a public speaker. And biota is a main theme, an artificial life, or a main theme of that. So I'm I'm literally now I have permission to to make the PhD doctoral work into a public performance. Um, perhaps at the at the end of the work, it'll actually come off as a as a large performance uh, art piece with perhaps Galen involved and media and computer graphics and whatnot, and it would kind of probably happen in London and be the Graysum London group as, as it exists in a couple of years would be part of that too. So I know you put out that it's kind of like artificial life Al Gore, but it almost seems like if you're talking about uh, oratory and performance that you're almost like artificial life's Terence McKenna in some regard as well. That's right. <laughs> and I can even speak in the funny voice. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yes, that, that's a, a prerequisite if you're going to be artificialized, Terence McKenna, clearly. So the topic for this evening is probably highly relevant to that in terms of the idea, and this is a more advanced topic. I want to give a background to the audience that we are starting off with relatively advanced, but at the same time, uh, discussive introductory topics. We're welcoming any topics, actually, from the audience. If you'd like to get in contact please email me, tom at novel8.com, or contact me through the Biota comments page if you have topics that you would like to be discussed and particular folks that you'd like to be participating. Obviously, we've had uh, quite a few folk already call in uh, and be a part of the conversation, uh, but we're always looking for new topics. Now, this topic came out of a discussion that you and I had, Bruce, probably about 10 days ago now when we were talking um, I think probably, as we do, quite romantically about the books that we had read and the kind of movement towards where we are today in terms of our own interest and passion with regards to artificial life. And I think it caught me at a particular point that for someone who's new and starting out in artificial life, getting an interest in artificial life, because there aren't the books that were available when we started out, all they have really now is internet resources. And this poses a number of kind of comparing and contrasting questions in terms of what are we saying through contemporary um, internet resources with regards to artificial life. As you've seen, I've had an ongoing dialogue with Paris OO uh, with regards to their musing about what a poor job we're doing in terms of actively communicating what contemporary artificial life is about. And I've certainly reflected on that in terms of the distinction between what we got through books, um, particularly books that had a very small number of pictures and mainly a lot of words and not a lot of programming that then we had to kind of embody in code in some regard and then make into projects. And now we're at the stage where, you know, the Internet is the, the primary resource with regards to what exists currently in artificial life. 
So the, the mode of communication and also the quality and persistence of the information has changed quite dramatically in this movement from books of the late 80s and early 90s through to uh, contemporary projects that are uh, coming up to, uh, what, 2010, 2012. And I think the range of discussion topics that I have outlined talk about what contemporary artificial life is, what the romance of the books were, particularly the movement from learning to program books into artificial life books and the venning between learning to program and developing artificial life and how a number of the resources I know, um, John Klein, with regards to Breve and I try to with Noble Ape as well to provide a nurturing environment for uh, new programmers as well as advanced programmers as they come to the, the projects, scripting languages, these kind of things we've already talked about. But in terms of the transition, what is your feeling in the quality change between starting out artificial life through reading books and now with a kind of contemporary internet setting, Bruce? I think there's, there's a kind of confusing vacuum in a lot of ways because they're, the people, a lot, people who are coming into it newly, if they don't have access to the dusty volumes, they, they don't know about the prior work, and so they're going to reinvent things and redo things that have already been done or problems that have been found to be unsolvable even with a lot of computing power. And I think that a, a focusing activity is needed um, and a kind of best practices or ontologies for for describing objects in artificial life systems. There has to be actually be some kind of central force that says here's all the here's all the resources and here's the unsolved problems and here are the people who are actively working in it as we had with the A Life Walk of Fame back in the mid 90s. And what I'm thinking more and more of goes back to an idea that we proposed to Richard Dawkins having tea in his house in Oxford uh, back in 2001, which was the idea if there was an annual prize competition uh, in artificial life, then it would truly focus a lot of the efforts uh, because you would define goals and you would define a, a way to measure the, the systems that were submitted and a way to analyze them and test them, and then you'd have year-on-year -year progress. And Dawkins loved the idea uh, and uh, agreed to participate in some manner of, in framing the questions or framing how, how you would go about uh, defining what you say, for instance, a measure of aliveness or life-likeness in these systems that a biologist would say, well, that's a, a 7 out of 10 or a 2 out of 10 on the life-like scale. It's an interesting problem, particularly when prefaced on Professor Dawkins' work. If you look at uh, genetic algorithms and fitness functions, these are but a component of contemporary artificial life. And certainly when I talk about things like communities and communication and things that happen uh, intergenerationally or in the same generation, these are qualities which uh, someone like Professor Dawkins may not necessarily be looking for. I think the fascinating thing when you start talking about prizes is what are the terms in which the prize is awarded, who are the judges, 
what are they judging based on? I mean, this is what's always fascinated me with the Vida Prize. Um, we've had two interviews already with regards to the Vida Prize, and I think both interviews identified different components that the uh, Vida judges were looking at with regards to artificial life art specifically. And I think the problem with regards to awarding prizes, and this has come up with regards to the Panspermia Prize and also with regards to the Singularity Prize in Artificial Life, is that they don't actively acknowledge uh, the need of the uh, community to uh, communicate in a non-competitive manner, perhaps. I think this kind of hyper-competition and polarisation doesn't do uh, a relatively fragile community like the artificial life community much good, particularly when there are polarizing influences in terms of outcomes and things of this nature. And whilst Professor Dawkins isn't a panspermia and he isn't a singularist, he does have a particular line which I think he would like to see followed in artificial life development, which, for example, uh, people that uh, may follow Sloan Wilson, the biologist Sloan Wilson's view uh, in terms of the effects of communities on genetics and these kind of things take a slightly different route to Dawkins. It's all evolutionary biology. It's just a slightly different framing. So I think in terms of the prize, and certainly this came up with my interview and chat with John Klein uh, last year, the problem with the prize is that it's fundamentally polarizing and there is a almost, as you say, the requirement of outcomes uh, almost begs the question, who sets those outcomes and what is the kind of long-term benefit of the outcomes in terms of strengthening the artificial life community? So my thought is, um, as we were discussing before we got to the prize specifically, the deficiencies that we currently see in contemporary artificial life communication, can you kind of outline those deficiencies for folks listening? Well, I, I think that you're completely right about the potential for the prize to be divisive in a fragile community. And actually, this reminds me that of our discussion last week of this idea of the evil grid or the evolution grid, which actually is sort of the opposite of a prize. It says you can, uh, we would like to have two or three or four systems communicating with each other and creating a kind of common e evolutionary space and then someone like John Klein, who's done a superb job on, on, on visualizing, connect into that grid and visualize what, what is happening in, the, in an otherwise semantic, purely semantic space. So that's more of a, a cooperative, uh, you know, let's build something greater than we can on our, on our own effort. Certainly. And in terms of communicating the aims of artificial life to a, a, a passively interested public, I think that was what was very successful with regards to the books initially. I mean, in, in kind of writing down outlines for this topic, the thing that struck me is that there is no shortage of young, brilliant minds that could actively participate in artificial life and, and move it in directions that you and I and others currently participating cannot imagine. And the question is really how do we get these young minds, potentially interested minds involved in artificial life. Now, historically, the way it was done was people like Professor Dawkins and his academic associates would publish books, which would then 
be, you know, a, a hungry mind would be looking through the bookshelves in their local library or in a, in a, as I did in an academic remainders bookstore and find these books that were all kind of neatly grouped in a similar kind of area uh, and was very familiar in some regard that I could come back week after week and see new titles slowly uh, emerge and, you know, and I liked the previous books in the area so I kept on kind of thumbing through them and bought them occasionally and there was this almost... Um, I think it's analogous in popular culture with regards to uh, metaphors in uh, comic books and popular fiction and science fiction. And I reflect with regards to the ideas of films and comics and all this kind of popular culture, which seems to be one of the main ways that history is conveyed forwards um, in kind of popular consciousness. And certainly um, I've had... Uh, communications and uh, relatively long-term friendship with Doug Rushkoff and the feedback that he always gave to me was that I need to think in kind of very dynamic ways. He's now publishing comics almost exclusively. I think he publishes books far less frequently because he's working on uh, comics almost exclusively as a way of uh, putting out his ideas. And I think for what we do, because the internet is so central in terms of putting out software, putting up documentation, it's very easy for us to forget that there are so many other possible media in order to get the information out, of, out to a, a young and in, a potentially interested audience with regards to what's going on in artificial life currently. I reflect particularly with regards to the success that we've had with these podcasts in terms of getting together a group of people that have an intermediate to advanced level of knowledge. One thing I would uh, implore the listening audience to do or consider is to create their own podcasts because what Gerald de Jung has done with regards to his Darwin at Home podcast is a perfect model for what I'd like other folks to do in the artificial life community. That is, create your own podcasts, create your own websites, create your own blogs, get out there and start actively discussing it. If the medium that we have currently um, you know, in our favour is the internet, then we should utilise it as users as well as developers in terms of conveying a, an idea that there's a plurality of discussion that goes into contemporary artificial life. But in terms of, in terms of books, in terms of secondary uh, media, we've talked about science fiction already, things like comic books and films and these kind of things. What's your thought with regards to conveying the messages of artificial life through these, these collective media, Bruce? I think that you know, it would be great if people would, say, build flash animations. To, to One of the great projects that I've had some involvement with in the last five years is the Creative Commons. And early on, a great animator uh, made a cartoon short in Flash that explains how the Creative Commons license works. And I think that that, more than anything else, uh, made that, demystified it and de-lawyerized it and allowed people to say, it's cool, and here's how I apply it to my music or my writing or whatever, and it, pr it promulgated it. And I think we need that kind of explanatory cartoon treatment uh, for, for the practitioners and the people who are coming in and want to be practitioners of artificial life or users. And certainly if you, if you go to the Spore homepage, you can see how they've used Flash there to promote the idea of the game, and I'm thinking something like that would be a wonderful thing if someone out there wants to do it. Well, this was certainly Joe Rian's feedback uh, when I interviewed him both in text and in podcast form, 
and he certainly comes from a graphical arts and flash and these kind of things uh, background. But I think uh, let's let's explore books for a start because contemporary publishing. Well, so I don't want to characterise that it's terribly different to uh, the late eighties and early nineties. There is a a hostile pragmatism in contemporary publishing. I can't remember whether it was last year or maybe even the year before. I had some correspondence with an agent in terms of writing an artificial life for dummies text. And the agent's view, which perhaps the listening audience's view as well, is that it would be very hard to actually preface artificial life for dummies in, in some real sense. There are a number of components that lead up to artificial life, for example, a, a programming knowledge or an interest in biology and these kind of you know, things that lead towards being interested in artificial life. I mean, what's your thought with regards to the quality of contemporary publishing, Bruce, in terms of popular publication and then perhaps secondarily academic publication? Oh, I think that the academic publication, if you look at the proceedings of the Artificial Life conferences, it's probably fairly opaque to the public. Um, they're, you know, the visionary component, I'm sure that people still buy Artificial Life to the proceedings online because there's a lot of very readable articles in there because it's very philosophical and, and whatnot. Uh, there's a lot of equations too. But I'm sure that the academic publications, and now especially as, as the human genome or the genomics people are coming in like Craig Venter and talking about wet artificial life, you know, that's, that's a whole different thing. I think that we, sh we shouldn't discount the, uh, the, the role of, of periodicals and magazines, especially po popular science-type magazines, you know, to, to promulgate, because they're kind of midway between the web and a book, and that they pretty much immediately put their stories up on the web, and they have the print edition that people still, still read those. So they're probably a major channel, um, just the stories they're writing, and if they decide to feature... Uh, the term artificial life. I remember New Scientist picked up uh, the Darwin at Home project back three years ago, and, and it generated an enormous amount of email. I remember getting 200 emails just in the first two days from, from that. Yes, I think that's why I'm speaking to you currently, Bruce, because you were unable at the time to both focus on the BIOS website and handle the email correspondence. So over that time, I picked up the editorial duties with regards to Biota, I seem to recall. But more recently, you've had quite a bit of success with regards to um, your NASA um, press releases and presentations. So, I mean, you really are in the cutting edge in terms of communicating um, abstract or perhaps even speculative science to, um, you know, popular science publications. What did you learn through that experience? Well, interestingly enough, today the, uh, the uh, reporter, the journalist uh, who, who really helped us at CNET, uh, Daniel Turdeman, was just down visiting. Uh, he came down, we had lunch together and talked about his up, he's, he's doing an upcoming reporter's road trip and I gave him a bunch of tips. But he just sort of wanted to talk about what I was up to. He had actually written, I think, nine or ten major stories about my work with the DigiBarn Computer Museum, with the Virtual Worlds for Space, and uh, you know, a number of other things. And, and it's amazing because Daniel was my first experience of a, of a reporter or journalist who decides that they have someone who can generate a lot of content and writes favorable as opposed to unfavorable articles uh, that get a huge audience. 
And so every time, I mean, it was amazing between November of 2006 and November of 2007, I was either on the front page of, of news.com, you know, three, four times I was the, the sort of uh, newsmaker of the day for several days in November. And that led to uh, numerous other things, including a cover story on a popular science this last November uh, in the magazine and on their, their website. And I, I realized that you come to a certain point where you're a trusted source, and they'll come to you, they'll go flip through the Rolodex and say, well, gee, who do I talk to about, you know, NASA's mission to the moon or something and designs, and, and they'll, they'll call you up. And I think that if I could become the go-to person for artificial life, and if I did my job right and did my homework right in knowing all the great thumb projects, and, you know, certainly through what you're doing, Tom, I have a great window into what's going on and the personalities then I could actually be, be a service to the community to to help the press get a clear story of what this is. And there may be some news item that comes out, some pronouncement by someone, and they'll call. And that's what's just gradually happening over time. And it takes years and years to build up all these press contacts and to be in the Rolodexes, but it does happen. Certainly, and another model that you've experienced is the response with regards to the Digibarn, particularly um, I think the, the Star Trek is reality um, TV thing that was on, I guess, the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and various other cable TV channels in the US and Canada. I mean, that every time that comes out on television, you get a, a spike of hits on the Digibarn page. Can you talk a little bit about that in, in terms of how we could map artificial life onto something that would be uh, television savvy. Absolutely. And in fact, as these shows come out, I'll actually be in another show, in a Discovery Channel show, in a couple of months uh, on the mind and imagination and dreaming uh, based on the NASA work. And there's a, there's a program, a movie called The Mac, uh, Mac Heads about uh, the Macintosh community, and that's coming out in the next month. But each one of these uh, sends a huge amount of traffic to certain sites, and, and, and it generates a pulse. And I can tell when the pulse of, is coming in, because perhaps in Dubai or in China, the, the, the uh, William Shatner Changed the World show is being aired, and then I'll get a bunch of, of form fills, and I'll respond. And sometimes I'll ask them if they saw the, 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 what show they saw, because it could be a CBS News show or some older show and they're just playing constantly. And I think what we need to do as a community, and this is something that uh, Howard Bloom, uh, we've talked about him before, he was a major figure in the music promotion business, and he was working on a nine-part series on space, on new space, like the 21st century uh, architectures for living in the solar system and whatnot, and all the approaches to space tourism, and trying to sell that show. And I'm not sure he, he found a buyer yet, but I watched him how he packaged that up and built what's called a pitch book. And that's what you take around. And this is all news to me. I don't know how you sell an entire series. But having been in some of these series now, you know, once that, that show is sold, they make up a roster of people they're going to go talk to, talking heads type of things, assets they have to acquire, a shooting schedule, which could last up to a year, depending
depending on the show, you know, budgets for special effects and whatnot. And then this crew, crew goes on the road. And it's a grueling schedule these people keep. But with the, out, the output of it is is, is something that is, is really shapes public perception. And so if we could get a show, even just get a segment of an existing science series or uh, like Scientific American Frontiers has, has done some good coverage in the past, but have an entire series on this, you, you would have a, a huge impact. Certainly, certainly. And sort of the inverse of this in some regard, and this is why I want to preface this discussion with regards to stuff that comes back specifically into the artificial life community, is our own experience with regards to the Douglas Adams text. And what happens every year is that a group of Douglas Adams devotees comes to the biota site and they listen to the Douglas Adams audio, they read the Douglas Adams text and then they leave. And the correlation between folk and it's literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that come to the site and pay homage annually to Douglas Adams through uh, the text that's on the Biota site. But none of those folk, and I, I'm pretty safe to say none of them, if any of them are listening and having listened to the uh, Biota podcast series, please get in contact with me, Tom at Novalate.com and correct me. But it appears through the numbers anyway that none of these folks actually stick around in terms of wanting to participate or a broader interest in artificial life. And I think this is the, the interesting thing with regards to putting out uh, something particularly that is on uh, periodic television or something which is, is captured by um, a popular science publication is that it needs to be tailored in such a way that it is actively nurturing for the community. I reflect working on the Graysum blog you see countless press releases which are very thinly turned into popular science articles, particularly from Craig Ventner. Um, well, maybe he's the one I'm most sensitive to, but certainly in volume, his stuff comes through. And these are very focused on his particular work or his institute's particular work. It doesn't, in fact, add anything that is nurturing and exploratory to the artificial life community, unlike things like... John Klein's screensaver, for example, that got folk onto the Noble Ape site. And there are ways in which to tailor these things which are very, um, very good at getting people actually curious, interested, and then involved with the, the various participants in Biota, for example. Can you talk a little bit about that, Bruce? Yeah. Um, for example, you put out a wonderful piece of simulation work like John Klein's done, and that, that is public, that can that will spread virally, and then carried along with it is a set of resources. And you'd hope that in, at the same time someone would go and do a television program about John or interview him as we've done here in a podcast, and it's an entire package, and then someone creates a blog or about John's work. And I think that the key thing is the capturing. So, for instance, if if of a thousand people that are that watch John Klein's you know, video podcast or some a documentary or see it in the magazine, see it on the web, listen to a podcast, download the screensaver, there's one person who gets so fired up that they want to uh, work on artificial life. You know, if that's what our goal is. Do you have to actually have a mechanism to invite them into the community and a mechanism to show them the ropes? And that's where I'm, I'm thinking this evil grid comes in, because if John said interested in writing artificial life software or using Breve, 
you know, you can take all these tutorials or you can also join the larger Evil Grid effort, which means that you can write a simple piece of Python somewhere or a little server running on the net and uh, start pinging and talking into this background grid and use my brevet to visualize what you've done. So that person who comes to the artificial life, you know, epiphany, if you will, doesn't get thrown back by having to write everything from scratch. There's all these toolkits out there, and there's this way that they can go and put their toe in the pond and, and wade around a bit in this grid, and they can leave behind a maybe a little finite state machine that they made uh, that somehow buzzes around, but they might get more inspired and, and build a, a really sophisticated addition, but that their addition, their contributions left around and it, it lives on and that uh, it's a richer community. So so that that's the framework. It's almost like you have to have a social network that, that emerges, and maybe there needs to be an artificialized social networking system. And I'm sure there's a tribe. There's, there's a tribe.net has an artificial life uh, tribe, but there probably needs to be something more sophisticated than just a social network, because it has to go around code and examples and in-person meetups and the whole bit that, that has say emerged in the Second Life community. Certainly, I mean there are two things here. Firstly, a, a perfect time to plug the biota group on Facebook and certainly I joined when I joined Facebook I joined every possible artificial life and even the artificial intelligence communities and the response that I've gotten back with regards to the biota podcast in particular through the artificial intelligence community has been very positive. Talking Robots has a link through from their site uh, to the biota podcast and it's it's great to be a part of their uh, their broader community as well. So I think in terms of the folks that are already interested, and this is really returning to my discussion of the intermediate to advanced listener, it's very easy to put information out there that these folk will be receptive to. Certainly my own reflections with regards to this podcast, particularly moving to the live format, I think the listenership uh, from the interview format has changed in some regard. And we're almost talking to a, a kind of more core group of folk currently who are more interested in all the possible dynamics as opposed to a kind of historical analysis of uh, various people and their projects. But it really still begs the question, how do you get these beginners or novices or folks that could be interested or folks that are um, artificial life curious, let's say, involved? Now, the Second Life example is very interesting, and I think there's a lot to be learned from uh, the Avatar community and the online game playing space in terms of how to get people interested. There is a, a far lower barrier for entry for a lot of these things, and also there is continuous, although perhaps not longer future investment in things like Second Life and there is certainly a weekly if not a, you know twice monthly string of press releases associated with Second Life as well. Um, they are the media darling still um, in terms of a wide variety of bizarre things including uh, Playboy Island and tracking down pedophiles through Second Life and tracking down jihadists through Second Life I saw in the past couple of days. I mean, it's amazing the press releases Linden Labs will put out in order to get continued interest in Second Life. We don't have that 
framework currently? I think certainly my own private thinking and also my talking with you privately, Bruce, and maybe even publicly through these podcasts, I said previously that the ability to have uh, an artificial life PR person who is sympathetic to what we were doing with Biota would be critical. And if you uh, go on to become the Al Gore slash Terence McKenna of artificial life, this would be your job fundamentally. But I think the, the kind of communication that you get with corporate entities and their ability to liaise uh, very transparently in terms of now, I feel almost all the tech media and all the science media as a kind of default. I'm not sure which, which, which has a different, whether, you know, whether there is an implicit hierarchy or whether they are the same kind of journalists in both. They tend to just respond to press releases in some regard. So it's always very curious to me as, as we have a community, um, and this I found through the Grayson blog in particular, that captures these press releases and puts it through the community so we can actively discuss these things. We should have a similar means of feedback into the broader community through these science publications and things of this nature. You seem to be saying that this would be your role in the future, Bruce. It, it could be. Um, and I'm still, and I, I welcome any suggestions from the audience. Uh, I'm this, this guy that came out of a programming background, vision, vision, you know, a starstruck programmer who ended up running teams for several companies, including NASA, and running a lot of conferences, creating the Biota Conference series and, and putting those together, some, several of those together, and then, the, of course, the Avatars series and becoming an evangelist for all of that in the 90s, and then an evangelist for uh, space and virtual worlds um, in the last few years. And so I guess I'm, I'm continuing the evangelical trail of finding something interesting to talk to audiences about and finding venues to talk. And, and certainly when I get to London, I'll be doing several talks, but this will just keep growing. But I, I'm open to what the content should be uh, very open to what the content should it be about evolution technology and, and the survival of humanity um, should it be about how we use artificial life to go into space or to, to create longer lifespans or the dangers potential dangers or the lack of potential dangers like the or the the ideas of the singularity and whether they have they hold any water you know there's there's a lot of uh, of topics. A, a friend of mine, Charles Ostman, I think last night he was on Coast to Coast Live, which is uh, hosted by George Nuri. It used to be hosted by Art Bell, and it's got a, it's a radio program that has millions of listeners, and it's that kind of program that uh, you can use to reach uh, an enormous audience of just ordinary listeners, and that's the kind of thing I'm edging toward is to call my friend Charles and say. Remember when you introduced me to Art Bell 10 years ago or 8 years ago? I'd like to be introduced to George Nori and try to pitch him on a show. And, and it's, that, it's that kind of thing, that constant, constant trying to get access to channels and then the follow-through when people have the questions and the live shows with visuals. You know, how do we... Uh, give you another example. I know I'm going on and on here, but Carter Emmert is a great friend of ours. He's a... Director of Astrovisualization at the Rose Center at the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. And his job is to create tours of the universe on this enormous dome and show, you know, how life began, how collisions, how the moon might have been formed. And he works with scientific teams and does, produces these shows that are, you know, showed five or six times a day to incoming groups. 
but he, he has this power of visualization that he can use to present uh, views of the universe um, to any audience, anywhere, he can project it, and then he comes on as a personality, kind of like a Carl Sagan type of guy, he, although he's a lot more sort of uh, humble and shy than Carl Sagan. But it's those resources, I think, are what reach people from whether it be a radio program with an excellent interviewer like George Norrie or, or really great visuals. Or But the content is the, the question, how do we show that artificial life matters to humanity's future? You know, how, how can we make it something that isn't abs, abstract and frightening to people and that it's, it's a great innovation? Well, I think we're beta testing the idea of a radio show currently. And we're beta testing the idea that content we can we can generate content at least on a weekly basis with regards to topics in artificial life. I certainly don't see any shortage myself. Now, in terms of already existing uh, communities, we've talked about a, l- a little bit the avatar community. We've talked a little bit about the space community. Do you think there is any uh, existing community that we can really learn from in terms of communicating artificial life better to a broader audience? Gosh, you know, NASA is actually so bad at communicating its mission, um, you know, so unclear. Although ind- individual missions, when they're going on, like the Mars rovers, it's, they do a brilliant job. But the overall agency is very cumbersome and doesn't understand PR. Um, I think that the Second Life certainly has really done a superb job. And Daniel Turneman, who is just, just here today, uh, is an example of an early report. Uh, Journalists who grabbed onto that and wrote a lot of the early stories, so they made it. They made it help his career, and he ended up writing a book about Second Life as well. So, the I don't know about the Singularity community, you know, Ray Kurzweil and, and company. Uh, they've put on some what I've heard to be very, very um, thought-provoking and uh, wonderful events and wonderful uh, conferences. I'm not sure about the follow-through, say, on supporting research and. Maybe a lot of it, too much of it has been about Ray himself, and Ray can be a controversial character that some people don't like. Um, so is that a good example? Um, there's a, the sort of the transhumanist community that also has a as a conference. Um, they may be sort of thought, out as, thought as being too way out there, too weird. Yeah, this is always the difficulty. I mean, I generated a short list of uh, potential communities that we could look at, and most of them were software-related, and almost all of them are, are prefaced by a decline, which is actively stated by their membership whenever they talk publicly, which I don't necessarily think is the right kind of vision for the future of artificial life. My concern also, and particularly this comes through participating in Dick Gordon's book, when I look around at the folks that I'm communicating with, I often wonder, will, will the general public just see artificial life along with the creationists, panspermians, and uh, you know, singularists in terms of um, you know, uh, trustability and uh, potential impact on the, the future of science. I know Gerald and I have slight disagreements, which will no doubt come out in uh, next Saturday morning's topic, Artificial Life Isn't Intelligent Design, with regards to whether what we are doing is equivalent to, and ironically, Gerald is more sympathetic than I, even I am with regards to the idea that we are just uh, tinkerers in sheds, you know, um, like model train enthusiasts building our own little, you know, model train universes or perhaps uh, home gardeners or, uh, you know, ant farm or um, 
I don't know, aquarium enthusiasts in some regard, whereas I still have the potential that we could have an impact back into the broader scientific community or at least the artistic community, which I think is already pretty well evident in terms of uh, Vida and things of this nature. So I, I think the finding the right community that we can learn from is probably going to be a, a relatively um, fruitless pursuit in some regard, but I think we always need to keep in mind that we don't necessarily want to become um, panspermians and we certainly aren't uh, model train enthusiasts either. We're kind of somewhere in, in you know, possibly a three or four point uh, distinction between all these kind of things. Now, in terms of contemporary publishing, Bruce, we've talked a little bit about um, magazines. Obviously, working through Dick Gordon's book, we're, we're currently putting some artificial life ideas out. I'm not sure whether the book is intended for uh, you know, advanced generalist consumption or whether it'll always be a um, you know, an academic centric text. What's your thinking uh in terms of injecting the the ideas of artificial life into uh, popular publishing? I think that if if Dick's book I mean Dick's book is coming out from World Scientific. Um, you know, Dick also has a, a has a partner professor in, in Skekbach, I think believe his name is in Israel, so it's Dick and it's Gordon and Skekbach. But um if a book came out like his book say it came out and it it became controversial and then a well known documentary filmmaker grabbed onto it and said, Oh, there's talking heads here and there's interest here and they then said, we're going to make the documentary about this, and then there's going to be a conference about this. It, the, the book, the um, movie What the Bleep ended up creating its own conference and its own movement. Um, and I have no idea what's happened to that, but it was sort of, it was powerful enough to move a lot of people. And I think that if, if we can do that, um, you get everything that follows. Do you have some concern that this that may feed into some marginalization of artificial life in the in the relatively short term? I mean, certainly my own feeling participating in the dialogues and even the title of the book has shown the uh, immense um, uh, polarity, uh, opposition of, uh, of uh, some of the participants. I can't imagine that the participants could ever get together in an organized conference um, purely through the naming. I mean, it really, the amazing thing with this project is that Dick has been able to get the kind of people involved that he has um, in terms of having them all sign up. Um, I don't know. I mean, my own thinking is that, and this is something that's come through recently through the Artificial Life uh, mailing list, which I should also plug. Um, I'm not sure how one gets on it currently, but you can certainly Google it and find it. And they regularly have invites for folks to write chapters. Um, certainly my feedback to Dave Kerr and others was that we should either collectively or as individuals have chapters on the back burner ready to submit to these kind of uh, publications. They're typically uh, on the cusp of, well, they're almost exclusively academic texts, but some of them do uh, lodge on the cusp of uh, academia and, and popular reading. And I think the ability to have a hobbyist perspective or the biota perspective in such a book would at least give us an initial voice which could move more into uh, popular publication in the future. I think the qualities of a book 
are very different to what we can do currently with regards to the internet. We've already discussed briefly, but perhaps not explored in the fullest possible degree, the problems with regards to internet communication. I think in one of the podcasts last week, I mentioned the idea that we get a lot of uh, passive interest from folks that are discovering something and then get to the Artificial Life page and then see, oh, there's a Biota podcast series and they download a few podcasts or they get to the Biota pages and they find the project list similar to alife.org in terms of folks finding projects through that. So in terms of the kind of office lunchtime, uh, you know, web use uh, ship, you can actually track that as you look at the Biota statistics um, as it traverses the Pacific and the Atlantic there is far less cruising around lunchtime as opposed to when it's on one of the major continents. And I think the ability for folk to generate a passive interest in um, these kind of things through the Internet resource is relatively easy to do. The ability, however, to... Um, capture the brilliant young mind as I've put in my notes is is the real question. What we need now is a new generation of artificial life developers, artificial life enthusiasts. Um, in some regard I've been able to catch some of those folk with regards to Mobile 8 personally because I've been able to make more uh, direct personal correspondence with regards to these people's use of, of Noble 8 specifically. But I think as a group, Biota needs to think very strongly about how we introduce um, people, teenagers, uh, people in the early 20s, folks starting university, these kind of things to create great unlike groups but also just finding the way to get the right kind of interest and perhaps getting an SDK into games and getting games saying, you know, now using the Biota artificial life engine or something like that, which in some regard could come out of the grid, in some regard could run in parallel to the grid in terms of uh, co-project development. I think all these things will get a, a, a younger audience interested in artificial life and capture the next generation of minds. But what has really lapsed is the ability to have books on the shelf that these folk can pick up in their local libraries and do things uh, of this nature. And I think we need to be very mindful in terms of generations that we are trying to capture and empower in terms of an interest in artificial life. What's your general thinking with regards to kind of 15 to 21 age group in terms of getting them interested and involved with artificial life, Bruce? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting time of life. You know, when we were 15 to 21, or at least when I was, you know, personal computers were just barely there. Uh, but it didn't mean that there wasn't a huge amount of passion and time and software developed by that community. And I think that that's, that's still there, although there's, you know, the computer per se as a tool, it is mainly the the, uh, the content and Facebook and things like that, that that grab attention. And there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of other things to do in technology. So I think it's, it's potentially harder to capture, you know, let's face it, if you're going to make a non-trivial artificial life system, you know more than anyone perhaps that I, that I know uh, the kind of quiet and... Um, Solitary dedication it takes to building such a thing. Certainly. And so it's it's the rare individual that will will take this on. And I think more than anything else, they need to know that other people out there have done it and support them, and that there's a com sort of a community of support if, if that's their passion. And they they're saying, oh, I'm just not going to write some simple scripts and get some visual effects and some ants going. I'm really going to do, you know, the simulants, and it's going to be sophisticated, I'm going to study ants, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to 
create my career when I go to college. I'm going to be doing this, and I'm going to dedicate my life to it. And it's that that you you only need a, a few individuals like that um, that decide at age 15 they're going to do it, and then reach out, reach a community. The community responds and says, "You're like gold. We want to support you, and we'll do anything we can. And you're going to soon outrun us." And, and they grow up into it, and they dedicate their lives to it. And those kinds of people, you don't even need a few, and you can power a whole field on, on just a few people like that. Certainly, certainly. With three minutes remaining, I think that that's inspirational to, to leave this discussion. I think we've probably touched on a majority of the bases that I wanted to discuss. Now, Bruce, you're going to be... You're going to be out of the uh, Biota Live sphere for probably the next month, by the sound of things. Possibly, although I'll try, I'd like to try to call in from, I'll be mostly on the East Coast. There is still a possibility of going to London, but it, I think I need to keep family first, and, and uh, Galen uh, may well come to London uh, in the summer with me, so that'll be a, a, an added bonus. Yes, no, it's a, it's a wonderful location that Justin has, and my hope is, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he'll be able to find speakers without much difficulty that would be willing to uh, participate in that particular space. So the topic next week, 10 a.m. Pacific on Saturday for 90 minutes, is Artificial Life Isn't Intelligent Design, which ultimately I think is really part of uh, Bruce's text and uh, Dick Gordon's book and I'd like to plug Dick Gordon's book again if you're interested in participating in that uh, please contact me directly tom at noble8.com like I said I passed on four names I should say that um, this evening's music comes from Montreal or in part from Montreal my friends in Montreal the beatboxing is done by Montreal's own Butter Beats and the scratching is done by GJ Static um, both friends of mine through long time correspondence I'm doing some remixing uh, for them currently so I wanted to put a bit of their music out in the Biota Live um, radio show particularly as we've been talking uh, about Rudy Rucker and ideas of a dark future and all this cyberpunk related stuff so thank you very much Bruce for your uh, chance to chat this evening and I look forward to talking to you in about a month's time. We are going to go through all kinds of uh, perturbations with regards to this podcast. I'm not going to be available sometime in early March so keep your eyes focused on biota.org slash podcast with regards to upcoming shows and show news. I have an active wiki um, with regards to the shows. Thank you all very much. Look forward to uh, you all tuning in next week.